Welcome to Meanwhile at the Museum, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes with the people, stories, and shenanigans that make Cincinnati Museum Center what it is. I'm Cody Efner, and today we're going to talk about Jeb, baby. We're going to talk about CMC. <laughs> Just to get that earworm in everyone's head, because we are joined by Jeb Brack. Jeb, welcome. Thank you very much, Cody. Pleasure to be here. So glad to have you, and I've heard that this is going to be a wild ride. Every time I've mentioned yeah, Jeb has reached out. We're we're trying to schedule Jeb to get on the podcast. I'm like, oh my god, I can't wait to hear what Jeb has to say. So high expectations already. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll try and live up to that. <laughs> so you are. You just told me this, and this is the recurring joke that no one else thinks is funny. Um, that you know what someone's title is verbatim, but you don't know what they do, or you know what they do, but you don't know what their title is. Your title is Museum Engagement Specialist? That is correct, sir. What does that mean? Well, it means that I'm the guy on the museum floor that you see when you come in. I'm the guy that says, no, that's not a T-Rex kid. That's a Torvosaurus. Uh, please get down from there, walking feet, friends. Uh, I'm the guy who is you know, explaining things as you go around the museum or helping you find something. Yes, the restroom's over there. Uh, like most of my most of my coworkers were there to have people have a good time when they come in the museum and maybe even learn something. The T Rex moment. What's that experience? How often does that happen when people ask, "Is that a T Rex?" And what's the reaction when you say no? Well, actually, people don't ask if it's a T Rex. They just point at it and go, "Look, a T Rex!" And I I don't say, "No, you're wrong." You are absolutely wrong. That is totally not a T-Rex. <laughs> if they want to know more about it, I'll say that is a Torvosaurus. Our T-Rex skull is over in that direction if you want to see it. But this is even rarer. This is even cooler than T-Rex. We're the only museum that's got one of these fully articulated, fully mounted skeletons of a Torvosaurus. And so that's my job is to be enthusiastic about the stuff we have and maybe slip in some education at the same time. T-Rex has done... For dinosaurs, what uh, Kleenex has done for tissues, and that everything kind of get a Kleenex. Well, this is this is off brand. This is that's right. You see a you see a, a predatory dinosaur. That's a T Rex. There's just no question. Uh, but I will tell you that the half the time the kids that come down the ramp into Dinosaur Hall, they know more about dinosaurs than I do, man. You know, they will tell me stuff about these dinosaurs. That's so incredible that the the amount of knowledge kids have, like in-depth knowledge. And it's always, people always talk about, it's so hard to get kids interested in school and for them to learn and for them to retain this stuff. And it's like, no, they're pretty good at it. They just pick and choose. Right. And they got to have the thing that they want to be interested in. And then they do the deep dive and they find out everything about it. And that's that's the power of museums. They come in, they see something cool that they get interested in, and they they start that deep dive. I sure hope so. That you know, That's really excellent to, t- to see when a kid is that into it. And if you can tell them something that will actually stick in their head, <laughs> that's that's amazing. How much education scale up is that for you to to know what's in all the galleries? Because the galleries are, um, it's a fruit salad. You're not just talking about different varieties of apples. It is apples, oranges, um, everyone's favorite honeydew and cantaloupe and grapes and everything like that. So how do you how do you keep it all straight? How do you have enough knowledge to be useful to guests on the floor? Well, we have a ton of resources that we study uh, to learn about this stuff because I'll be honest, five years ago when I started working here, I did not know all of these things. You know, I knew a a little bit here and there. I could uh, throw in some words to sound smart. Uh, but we, you know, you study the resources, you talk to other employees uh, who maybe have been there longer, and they will help you learn things about all the exhibits. And so in the last few months, I have learned an awful lot about the Ordovician period because, you know, we've got this new gallery that's open. We had to learn that stuff, man. We couldn't, you know, we couldn't just skate by on what we already knew. So each gallery has some things that are really cool to point out to guests. And if you can sort of show them those things while you're learning all the other stuff, it gives you a little bit of leeway. So you point up at uh, the Gallium Opus tail and say, see that? That's where it slammed its tail in the car door. See, and then it rehealed. <laughs> but, uh, you know, they're looking at that. They don't know that you don't know everything about that, that Gallium Opus. Yeah, it's it, sometimes 
I was a TA in grad school and I just needed to be a chapter ahead of everyone else. Yeah, it's a little pretty bit much. Like that. So it's like, can I read this text panel faster than this than this <laughs> kid can, so I can answer a, a question about um, about Dunkley Osteus or something like that? Yeah, exactly. But uh, I will tell you, the thing is that everybody who is working out on the floor cares an awful lot that they want to give information that's correct. And so everybody wants to learn that stuff. You don't do this job unless you're curious and you want to learn more anyway. And so we are always finding out new stuff when new exhibits open or if we're just doing a slightly deeper dive like into the, the history and the history museum. Last couple of months, I've learned how to work a printing press. All right. Yeah. I mean, and that's just amazing. That's one of the many reasons why it's really cool to actually be working on the museum floor is the cool stuff you get to do and learn while you're doing it. You're regular Gutenberg now. <laughs> well, I would not say that. No. But uh, I'm not talking I, I know about enough... Steve Gutenberg. So do you want no, to No, him I can now? do. Okay. Him I can do. That's oh. fine. <laughs> but uh, no, I know enough not to get the ink on my fingers. So what's your, what's your background? I mean... Because you you mentioned it's a lot of content. It's a lot to learn. What prepared you to take that on? Well, um, I like to describe myself as a modern-day Renaissance man in that I know a little bit about a lot of stuff. So my background that prepared me for work most at Museum Center is uh, an entertainment background. For about 20 years, I was a professional magician. What? Yes, it's true. Uh, part-time professional magician. I would raise my kids, you know, and, and be a house husband during the day. Hey, that's... And then nights and weekends, I was out doing magic shows and strolling magic and things like that. Raising kids takes some magic, so... Oh, my that's... gosh. Yeah, absolutely. And to keep from going crazy, I started teaching myself magic tricks, uh, you know, when they were little. And then the more magic equipment and books I bought, the more I realized I had to make some money to pay for it all. And so I started doing shows. And... That was, gosh, back when the first Harry Potter book was published. And so my first magic show was a Harry Potter magic show. I played a magic professor and I taught magic lessons and uh, just kept going from there. Um, and when we moved to Cincinnati about a dozen years ago, I was kind of tired of finding gigs. You know, I hated going out and finding gigs. And so when there was a uh, job fair here at the museum, I was like, I bet I could do that job. And so I came in and interviewed for it. And now I get to do magic on the science stage, except that it's science. So it's real. Hey, that's you know? immediately what came to mind because I, I've seen you make pumpkins levitate. Yeah. That's, I have so many questions. <laughs> this is so fascinating. So, all right. Did you have a signature magic trick that you did? The, what was your finale? Uh, well, I don't know about the finale. Uh, I did a couple. It depended on the show. But I would say that my signature uh, magic trick was a hypnotism routine in which I could make people see an egg and then put it in the bag and then the egg would disappear and I would tell them it was because they were hypnotized and they weren't seeing the egg and things like that. Um, that is one of the few pieces of magic equipment and knowledge that I retain because I, I don't do shows anymore. I do all my performing here at the museum. Um, but yeah, that was uh, that was something that I really loved to do. Did you did you do sleight of hand? We, yep. We, okay. Yep. Sleight of hand. I did some stage tricks. I didn't do anything really big that needed an assistant. That was I couldn't afford an assistant. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I had three or four different shows, or I would do strolling at restaurants or events or things like that, and then just you know improv with people and interact with them, and that prepared me in a huge way for being on the floor of the museum. Is that People come up and they ask me a question, and I can talk with them for ages about just about anything. So because you do, you do have to perform when you're when you're on the floor because it's that's part of the experience for guests as well. Oh, it absolutely is. I mean, that's the way I look at it. A lot of the folks uh, who are working on the floor are in it because they want to teach people stuff. They want they're coming at it from an educational standpoint, and that's very very important because they know how to do those things. I come at it from an entertainment standpoint. I think that most of the folks who come to the museum are looking to be entertained and maybe get a little knowledge out of it too, but mostly they want to have a good time. And so if you can give them a good day, if you can have them have fun in the museum and they learn something from it, they're going to come back because they're going to remember that it's a good time and they'll, they'll keep learning stuff while they're doing it. You hit on something that is so important. People think it's 
it's a dirty word to say we're entertaining people in a museum, but if people are entertained, they're going to learn because they're they're going to spend more time. They're going to immerse themselves more in it. And they're coming into a museum. They're inevitably they're going to learn something new by how much and what kind of learning happens after they leave. If they have a really wonderful experience, they're going to continue that learning journey after they leave. Yeah, I think they're more likely to learn something if they're having a good time and they don't really notice that they're learning it. Uh, You know, most people think of education, they got to sit at their desk and they got to hear a lecture or something like that. Now, I want to be clear that there are so many folks on our team, the museum engagement team, that have so many incredible knowledge bases and talents. I mean, we got people with paleontology degrees, history degrees, art degrees, theater degrees, and they are all helping people to learn, but they're all helping people have a great time doing it. And that's the engagement in museum engagement. We're trying to get people's attention, get them involved in the museum, give them a good experience so that they will come back and do it some more. In talking about that team, it really does become this Power Ranger Megazord or this Voltron (laughs) experience because you're taking all those degrees, you're taking all that experience, and you're sharing it with each other more or less through osmosis because you may overhear, you know, someone else on the team talking to a guest and saying, oh my gosh, I really like that. That is so fascinating. I didn't know that before. All right, now that's part of your routine. That's part of your arsenal that you can share with guests as well. Um, in, In taking people's interest areas and if you have someone who's really passionate really interested about something regardless of your interest level they can make it interesting for you well and it's not even all that passive as to overhear somebody you know interacting with a guest we actively trade knowledge bases we show each other how to do stuff we give each other information about the things that we're doing so uh, Johnny in uh, museum engagement has a paleontology degree and he is super excited about the Ordovician gallery. He is telling us stuff, you know, the Ordovician gallery has a ton of information, but he's even given us other stuff that we can then add in to give the guests a little something extra as well. And so it's a very active exchange of skills and knowledge and things like that. That's one of the reasons why I love our team. Do you have a favorite fact that that you like to pull out on the museum floor that you're just itching? Give give me an excuse to tell someone this. Cincinnati History Museum and Cincinnati in Motion, I love to talk about the inclines. They are so fascinating to me that I, you know, we have some information in our resources, but we only have 3 of the 5 inclines represented in Cincinnati in Motion. So I can point out all of them. I have it written down, you know, when they were founded, how long they were used, what kinds of things were at the top and you know just I would love for people to ask me more about inclines. So I'm always just there kind of waiting. Now I got a ton of facts or things that I can say in Cincinnati in Motion. I can talk to folks about just about anything in there. Well, and that's true just about any gallery in the museum, but that's the one that I really want to This is your moment. Tell us about inclines. Well, uh, like I said, there were five inclines in Cincinnati at one time, and they all had various periods of uh, operation. Um, The two that we don't have represented in Cincinnati in motion are the Mount Auburn incline uh, and the Price Hill incline. The Price Hill incline was privately owned uh, by the Price family, which is why it's Price Hill. And there were actually two inclines next to each other, one for freight wagons, and then one were like funicular cars like they have in Pittsburgh just to carry passengers up and down. So that was something that was kind of cool about that. The Mount Auburn incline was one of the first that was built. Uh, and at first it was a fixed car, and then they adapted it for streetcars to ride up and down. It is the only one that had suffered a mishap uh, that had fatalities, that the the cable snapped and sent a car plunging down to the bottom of the, the incline and it killed a half a dozen people. Oh, wow. So they shut down for uh, several years to re, you know revamp it and then they reopened, but it never really regained the prominence that it used to have. So those are a couple of things that I like to tell people about the inclines here in Cincinnati. That's fascinating. I know, right? You said you're a renaissance man. You're a modern renaissance man who knows a, a little about a lot of things. That's true. So beyond inclines, in those lots, lots of things, in those little bits, what would you say the the most random, the wackiest fact you have that you can 
just throw out. Right? No, this is the a wackiest fact, man, because there's a lot of really weird and interesting things. But um, yeah, this is asking you to to pick through your entire encyclopedia. <laughs> I'm gonna go with the uh, the Gallium Opus with the broken tail because I love pointing that out. That is a creature that had a life, and we can see that it was injured and it survived it and healed from it. That's a pretty amazing thing to point out to people because they're looking at skeletons. They're just like, yeah, you know, okay, whatever. You're right. It, it, people think that's just a um, a generic representation of the entire species, right? Not an individual that you know, lived in a particular place, had a family, had a mate, ate things. It has its own story. And pointing out the tale is a way to to make that personal. I just, I just thought of another one. Okay, down in the space gallery. I would love for this to be visual because you just got so excited. The Neil Armstrong Space Exploration Gallery. We have a little piece of moon rock, right, that Neil Armstrong donated to the museum because he was on the board. The moon rock people would say, where is it? And I pointed out and they go, oh, that's it? That's I'm like, it. what size is your moon rock? <laughs> yeah, that's Jeez. right. That's right. And we have a little, uh, a little display next to it where you can touch a piece of rock that feels like the moon rock and everything like that. I always like to say to people, yeah, that's great. What does it smell like? What does the moon rock smell like? And everybody's like, what? He's like, well, there's no air on the moon, right? So there's no odors on the moon. But when the first expedition uh, made it to the moon, uh, Apollo 11, they brought dust back inside with them on their suits and stuff like that. The engineers were afraid that when they flooded the cabin with air, that it might ignite. And so here you got these two astronauts sitting in this little capsule, afraid that when they put the air back in, it's gonna there's gonna be fire in the yeah. cabin. So they took a little pile of dust and moon rock and they put it on a flat space and then they put the air back on and nothing happened. But they took their helmets off, they could smell burned steak or gunpowder. Really? And that, that is from uh, a book called One Giant Leap. And yeah, they that's the smell of the moon when it's exposed to air for the first time. It smells like burned gunpowder. I feel like the burnt steak is wishful thinking based on what they <laughs> what they're eating. It it doesn't smell like Could cheese. Be. It does not smell like cheese huh. as far as I know. Now, I have never smelled a moon rock cuz ours is encased in lucite, so you know, maybe I'll get a chance one day, but I cannot confirm that personally. That's wow. just from my reading. That's amazing. I again, People think of of history and they think of moments. They think of science in in broad swaths, right? Yeah. They they want a really high level view, but it's those individual, those very small details that make it fascinating. That make it like that stuff lasts with you. Sure, absolutely. And, and there's just stuff all over the museum like that that you know you come across this little thing, uh, but no, that's a shoe from the first European colonist who made it into Ohio. You know, this little six year old kid. And it's a little a little shoe from her, uh, you know, unbelievable. It's really fun. I think that the exhibit designers have a lot of fun putting those little Easter eggs in, absolutely, and, and, and being very intentional about things that you know. It someone's going to say, "Oh, that's a shoe that they would have worn at that time." No, it's not just any shoe. <laughs> it's very intentional what is selected to be in there, and that's also. Uh, a benefit that we have is that our collections are so large that we we don't just put the only shoe we have in there. We say, which one do we want to put in? Sure. And sure. you mentioned the Ordovician Gallery. Dr. Brenda Hunda is, which which of all these millions of fossils, <laughs> these invertebrate fossils, do you want to put in there? Or which should we put in? Yeah, that is, that is a job that I am glad that I didn't have to do. Is I don't know that I could have made up my mind. There's so many cool things in there. Do you have a favorite gallery? Uh, the Cincinnati in Motion is a favorite, but I also love the public landing. When I first started working here, I was in what was then the Shows and Interpretations Department. We were the ones who were dressing out in costume. Yeah. And then we would also do the science shows, and we would run the dance parties and stuff like that. But I just loved being in costume, on the public landing, interacting with people and talking to them about what life might have been like in the 1850s and 1860s in Cincinnati. Um, I was a Renaissance fair guy for a long time. I, you know, I loved dressing up in costume and, and play acting like that. So that was just, that was dream come true. To, do you, do you put the period costume on and you're like, why can't we bring this back now? Why can't I wear a top hat all the oh, time? Oh no. I mean, the top hats are cool and everything, but boy, they wore a lot of wool. <laughs> <laughs> I, I talked with Evan, uh, 
the other day and I said, hey, I need a costume. And he goes, all right, what do you want to pick? And I was like, that one has a lot of wool and does not appeal to me at all. Well, I'm mean, um, sorry, my man, but that's pretty much what they were wearing was a lot of heavy wool clothes. So, you know, summertime in Cincinnati and wool, oh, forget about it. With they All these romance novels, they'll always be set, <laughs> you know, bad, they're always... Yeah, well, romance novels are, are, you know, if it's a historic novel, great, where they're paying attention to the details. But a romance novel is for fantasy and fun. It's not for the details. It's, it's not for the realistic. <laughs> my 18th century mill worker came and swept me off my feet after he'd been working all <laughs> day right. in this wool outfit. When yeah, so he smelled as rank as the, he the was, sheepskins he was working with. He was four days from his most recent bath. <laughs> like, wow, romance really people were really into personality. Yeah, I don't I don't take historical interpretation that far. You know, you're gonna have to do with you're gonna have to make some allowances for anachronisms with me, I'm afraid. People were always like, Oh man, if I could go back to any period of time and it's like, hold on, let's think of Hold up. Let let's run through the whole day and, and think what what are you like and what are you gonna miss and what are you going to miss that other people don't have access yep. to? That's kind of why I wish that we would push 1940s day a little deeper into the fall <laughs> so that when I'm wearing my suit, you know, and my big old wool fedora or my felt fedora or whatever, you know, I'm not going to be just melting into it all day long. I've borrowed those costumes as well. And I look at him and I say, oh, yeah, this was in August last year. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's no, right. Thanks. Now, we do have a system where we mark down that this really should be taken to be dry cleaned, please. The, so. I, I have also walked past the entire rack, just a huge rack of uh, of clothes and outfits after 1940s day. So yep. uh, that that was the time to get, em, get back into them because <laughs> exactly they, they right. never smelled better. <laughs> that's right. You mentioned magic. You still dabble? Is that still a hobby, or did you kind of burn yourself out on that? Uh, I think I burned out pretty good. I still have some of my favorite gear, but I recently moved to a much smaller place, and so I had to downsize. So most of my stuff, if I didn't sell it outright, uh, is you know languishing in my kid's basement waiting for me to find somebody who will take it off my hands. Couldn't you have made it disappear and just make it reappear when you need it? Uh, yeah, I could, uh, but it's really expensive. <laughs> So you've done science magic, we'll say, on the science stage. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's something that's really that's really fun for kids because learning science concepts can be kind of dry and say, okay, well, what does this mean? Why does this matter? Because you could do some cool stuff with it. Like you can, when you grow up, you'll find some really great practical applications for this. But for right now, let. Right, exactly. Let's I mean, that's, that's how we're treat. That's how we're teaching concepts on the science stage is by demonstrating something that uh, is really cool. It grabs your attention, and you're like, "Wow, that's amazing!" But we're also explaining the science behind it. And I think that only once have I bumped into a kid who was like, "You're the guy who did that fireball on stage," <laughs> and I was like, "Yes, I was." Do you remember what made that? And he was like, "Oh." Uh, heat and air and that dust. I was like, "You got it. You learned something. <laughs> My work here is done." You, were, but in that moment, you were you were torn because I kind of want him to remember to have learned, but I also don't want him to know enough to go home and do this. Well, I mean, we do use some specialized materials that aren't just you know available off the shelf. So fortunately, I also make sure to say, "Please don't try this at home. Go over to a friend's house and try it." <laughs> That's, see, that's sage advice. Yes, if, absolutely. If you take nothing, nothing else away, go over to a friend's house and try it. That you know, then it's his problem. So, let's talk about before museum. Before, like, what's your what's your background? Like that you're you're bringing in here and you're just making it sing for people. Well, I mean, I met and married my wife at college, or you know, right after college, uh, and she was the one who was the driven person. She wanted to be in corporate life and she wanted to be moving up the corporate ladder, which was great because I hate that stuff. <laughs> I am terrible at 
you know, going to an office every day and sitting there and going into meetings and things like that. So I did a lot of things like I worked at a radio station or two uh, as an announcer or as a DJ or whatever. I had a radio talk show for a while. Do you have a DJ announcer voice? Not really. I I, you, just... I was tend to be doing just like this, very conversational uh, interviews and things like that. And the place where I was a DJ, it was all big wheels of reel-to-reel tape playing adult contemporary music. Oh, oh boy. That was really something. What year was that? What, uh, so what 1990, were, 91. What were some of the, the hits that were on? Like, oh, well, there were no hits. Rotation. This was like Montavani, and it was like, uh, you know, um, just it was that kind of elevator music. <laughs> you would put on these reels of tape. You'd have to change them every hour, and then it would just play a half an hour of this canned music. And then I was, you know, putting the carts in the machine and pressing the button to start the commercials and stuff like that. Um, so that was not a particularly glamorous way to break into radio. But then I went to work for a talk radio station and we had a daily public affairs talk show where we would, you know, just talk about the community events in Greenville, North Carolina. Uh, All right. Where I was. So I tried that. But then when our kids came along, obviously my wife was going to go back to work. And so I stayed at home and became a stay-at-home dad and a house husband, and that's that was my career for a good 20 years, was raising them, taking them to school, going on the field trips, making the lunches, doing the cleaning, which I would usually do at like 4 o'clock when my wife was due home at 5. Um, stuff like, oh, like no. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we got to clean this up, guys. <laughs> um, so then I, I went into magic for a while, um, but now mostly, you know, what I'm doing is a lot of artwork. Uh, um, I'm one of the administrators of a group called Cincinnati Urban Sketchers here in town where we go out into the community and we sketch and draw, and then we post those drawings online for people to see. Um, they're coming here. Uh, they're going to be sketching here before too long uh, in Holiday Junction real soon. Where, where does that come from for you? Have you always sketch have you always had that uh i always liked i always liked to draw i was never all that great at it until my oldest kid went to college at uh art school and she came home she was studying industrial design and she came home from her first year of school and she was like dad they gave me homework over the summer i was like what kind of homework and she said i have to fill 10 sketchbooks this summer now 10 sketchbooks is a lot but i was like i want to do that so we went and we bought 20 sketchbooks, and together we filled it. And at the end of that summer, I was noticeably better than I had been before. And I've just kept up with it ever since. That's so, incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'm trying to bring that into the museum. I have a new program that I'm sh running every so often called Sketch CMC, where we give out CMC sketchbooks. And the catch is you got to sketch something right now, and then you get to keep the sketchbook. And so I'm doing that in the History Museum. I'm doing that in the Science Museum. And on December 4th, we're doing it in uh, Holiday Junction. And the Urban Sketchers will be here doing that, too. Do they pick up more like architecture? Are they, they sketching more buildings? Are they sketching people? Are they sketching like, objects? What is it just Urban Sketchers everything? sketches uh, whatever they see in front of them at whatever location we are. I do a lot of architecture uh, and cars. Uh, I try and add people. Uh, to those sketches when I can, but we have professional illustrators and architects who come and do, and they they do you know their thing. Other people will just sketch just a little scene that's near them or whatever. Um, I highly recommend checking it out because urban sketching is a phenomenon that's all over the world now. Uh, you can find a sketching group in every city, just about in the country. Um, I've even sketched with sketchers in uh, Spain and Romania wow. when I was abroad. And that's just amazing to sit with people from another country and sketch what you see. It's really great. It's fun because you're looking through you're looking through their eyes and seeing what they see because we can all look at the exact same thing. We're all looking at different stuff. And when you're sketching, you're honing in on, on what you see and what's fascinating to you. So yeah. I, to me, that's a interesting sociology experiment to see what you have this group of people and what is jumping out yep. to who and why. And not only that, but it is training your eye to look at things that most people don't even see when they're looking at something. So when you're sketching, you're seeing all the details. You are seeing things that, you know, you might not see otherwise. And naturalists, scientists, historians, journalists have all sketched through the ages. So this is a great way to train yourself to record something you're seeing in life.
these are just more ways that you can invite people to learn. In, Absolutely. In, because not everyone learns the same way. Not everyone um, is interested in the same things. And that's a special ability that museums have that schools don't always necessarily. Schools have to hit. Everyone's essentially working from the same textbook. So you can't always vary those for different students here. You can give people different entry points in each exhibit, each gallery. You can learn in different ways. So it's a it's an opportunity for people to find information, to find learning and education uh, at their pace, at their level, in their own interest. Absolutely, and that's one of the great things about the the folks on our team is that they all have different ways of bringing their knowledge and their expertise to the people that they're meeting. You know, everybody's got a slightly different approach, different things they want to get across. And so you could have a different experience every time you visit the museum, depending on who you bump into and the way the conversation takes you. It's one of the great things about this place. In among those conversations, what's one of the just wackiest questions a guest has asked you? Mm, wackiest questions. Um the question that I get asked the most is, these dinosaurs aren't real, are they? <laughs> and that's not really a wacky question. It's just like, I can't believe that I'm looking at something that's 75 million years old. That's not, that can't be real, right? Well, it is. At least half of those skeletons in Dinosaur Hall, every one of them is the real thing. I do go on to explain that we're we're adding in cast replicas of the ones that were missing, because it's really rare to find a full dinosaur skeleton, but Here's the ones that are real. See this little map? That'll tell you which ones are real. We're a science-based and history-based institution. When you get into history, it we don't have the full record of every Oh no, everything history that happens. So you are yeah. you're piecing it together. You're kind of a detective and if you're a historian, you're you're part lawyer because you're you're pleading your case. No, these are the facts. This is what happened and let me show you the evidence why. And there's another historian who's going to say counter arguments. It happened this way because of this. You know, well, in history, I mean, you've got the stories of the different people who are there, and we're learning it from a bunch of different sources. And so uh, that one is not as hard and fast as it might be when you can say, yeah, we have found this fossil and we have dated it to this time. And you can say that's how old that thing is. Now, what you can't say is here's how that gallium opus hurt its tail. We don't know. Because, right. you know, it's not telling us. Um, but as far as history goes, yeah, we have got a whole bunch of stuff from uh, white settlers who came to this area. We've got a lot of their artifacts and things like that. But there were people living here before they arrived. And let's hear their stories, too, because their story is going to be different from the one of the folks who were coming in to colonize. So there's always something different to hear, and I'm totally open to that. I love hearing the different stories of different people. Because history, two truths can exist at the same time. If there's if there's a snowstorm, someone, this is great, this is one of the best <laughs> days because it's a kid and they get to go sledding and they get to build a snowman. And then someone else says, this is miserable. I work on a riverboat. <laughs> and <laughs> exactly this is not right. the weather I want to be I want to be out in. So two two truths can exist at the same time. Yep. Uh in, in science and when you're dealing with prehistory, that could be a little uh a little more difficult. And there are a lot of hard and fast rules to science. There are laws of uh laws of gravity and thermodynamics and other things that that's the extent of my science knowledge so <laughs> well i mean but the thing of it is that science uh if if it's being honest about it science is always learning new stuff and we have to be able to accept if we have learned something new i mean we got all kinds of examples of dinosaur skeletons for example that got put together just plain wrong because they didn't have any other evidence to contradict it and so they just had what they got and they put it together and came up with this weird looking creature that never existed it, or they they put a creature together right but also wrong and we have some of those examples at the Geyer Center of dinosaurs with their tails dragging on the ground because they think all oh, these this long tail this long heavy heavy, tail just yeah. dragged on the ground right and then research shows well no that's not true but it's very interesting to watch science learn through time because you could argue to be a good scientist, you have to fail a lot. If you get it right pretty quickly, 
Well, I mean, testing, it's a fluke. Yeah, you're sure always the other testing things your fail. assumptions. Now, I do want to be clear. I am not a scientist. I only play one on the science stage from time <laughs> to time. So my knowledge of science is imperfect. I try and give people the best information that I've got. But if I don't know the answer, I'm going to say so. But then I also make a note of the question and I go and try and find out what the answer to that question is. So I'll know a little bit more. I'll be more prepared next time somebody asks me that. This is for all listeners. When you ask questions, you are giving our team homework. If they if they don't know, you're giving them homework because or you're giving them a chance to show off. Because if that's another thing is that being somebody who is from a performance background, I love to show off. You know, that's why I like being on the science stage and doing cool demonstrations and stuff like that. I like to show that I know something, but uh, that also goes with having to be able to say. I don't know the answer to that. You know, that's a really good question. I'm going to try and find that out before you leave so that I can let you know. Um, but if I don't find you, just know I'm going to be looking this up. I'm going to be learning about this so that I can help the next person know it. So, yeah, you might be giving homework, but that's just a chance to discover something new. What's your favorite program to do on the science stage? Uh my favorite is uh, the levitating watermelon or levitating pumpkin or levitating Christmas ornament or whatever, because I love to tell people that I'm going to make a watermelon float in the air, and they come running over to see it, and then they find out it's a beach ball, but by then it's too late for them to leave. We had a real Gallagher problem when we first launched that program, and <laughs> luckily we've gotten away from that. But Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's really cool. It's a really fun visual. Uh, all the Science Stage programs are very visual. They, they're super engaging, which is well, we, uh, part of the power. Well, back before the pandemic, in the before times, we would have much longer Science Stage shows that we could go up to 20 minutes to a half an hour doing a series of demonstrations and sometimes they would have a story that wove them all together when we came back from the pandemic shutdown we had to do these much shorter sharper demos so that people would come and see it and then they would disperse and so we wouldn't have a whole bunch of people all gathered together for a long time now the short science demo is fun it's fast you can see it in 10 minutes and then move on to the next part of your day but there's also some value in having longer format things as well, and so we're hoping that we're going to get back to some of that in the near future, try and give people more of a you know, theater-going experience rather than just a quick demonstration. Do you find that you're engaging adults as much as kids? Because we, we've talked a lot about kids, and kids are very curious, and they have a lot of questions, but often adults come in, and they're amazed by how much they're learning and they get into it absolutely and i love when adults are engaging with the material i mean i like uh, impressing kids i like for them to be learning something but my most rewarding i think experiences are when an adult is like i had no idea i didn't know we had a state fossil let alone a state invertebrate fossil and a state vertebrate fossil i had no idea that's amazing that's great because that means that they're getting something out of coming to the museum as well. They're not just doing it to bring their kid to be entertained for an hour. They're getting something out of it, too. And a reality is people like to feel smart. They 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 want to understand. They yeah. want to get stuff or they want to build on knowledge they already have. Sure. There was one day uh, I was walking through. We had... Um, we had some colleagues visiting in the building, and I was part of a tour leading them through. And you were doing a program. I thought it was going to be, oh, hey, Jeb, what's going on? What are you, what are you doing here? Oh, that's that's very interesting. Oh, crap, i got to get back to this. Tour. <laughs> but you were doing uh, – you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, and I'm not going to describe it well. You were doing a, a water flow yeah, program. Uh, yeah, it's a rainfall runoff yes. uh, demonstration where we're demonstrating what happens to rainwater when it falls on different surfaces. And the idea is – that we are, we need to come up with ways in uh, cities to handle water runoff so that it doesn't overwhelm our water treatment and then wash sewage into the Ohio River. Um, and so we're showing how it works on grass and how it works on gravel. And then here's concrete and, oh, it just makes a big old puddle and that whatever's on top of that concrete is going to wash right down into the river. So let's find ways to fix that. Um, yeah, that is uh, a, a demonstration we're running almost daily. Uh, so if anybody is interested in that, you should definitely come early in the in the morning, about ten o'clock, because that's when we have that out. It, but it's so it's so visual. It's so it explains it so well, and I was fascinated by it. I 
I've thought about it multiple times. I've talked to people about it multiple times since then because it clicks so well. It, it's almost like it's you see it visualized in that way. Sure. And it's almost a no-brainer. You, you think, how did I not know this? How, did it, how is this not just innate knowledge I would know? Well, how many times do you think about it? You know, you're walking through the rain. All you're thinking about is let's get inside. You're not thinking about how it's all puddling on this parking lot and it's taking all the oil that's on top of that parking lot and then it's washing down into our water supply. That That's not right. We should do something about No, you're busy moving on through. Have you heard that if you run... In the rain, you get more wet than if you just walk. I have heard that, and that can't uh, be true, that, right? I think that MythBusters disproved it. I think it's just you're going to get wet, and the, you know, fast or slow, it's not really going to. Ma- I would say take an umbrella. That would be my advice. <laughs> All right, that's that's good. <laughs> that I I had a follow up, but that would, that's even better than anything. So, but it's as an adult, you kind of what what I think is really fun about this museum is how nostalgic it makes you feel and it, it doesn't make you think oh those were the good old days or anything like you get to relive your childhood a little bit a lot of people and- tell me that yeah then when they come in uh either to uh, the history museum or whatever or even into the children's museum you'll see a lot of young adults be like i remember this there's a slide over there let's go down the slide or the yeah. you know um and then a lot of people will be like Where's the World War II exhibit? <laughs> yeah. oh, you just opened a can of worms. <laughs> I know, I know. It's like I liked it too. It was old. We got some new things. Try, you know, try and enjoy the new things. We got some great new stuff. It's tough. There's a lot. There's a lot of information to cover. There's a lot of um, a lot of stuff to cover, and only a limited amount of space to do it. So yes, we <laughs> we we have heard your feedback on the World War II exhibit. <laughs> Uh, and we, we have taken it under advisement. So yes, you have been heard. Uh, but it's, it's that sense of when you're able to bring, when you're able to bring that childlike sense of, of wonder or curiosity to people, it's, it's pretty special because people grow up, they lose it. They, they become adults and they have to worry about insurance and, uh, yeah, and all finances the, and stuff like that. And all you're the not, usual stuff. Like, I don't have time to go learn yep. what the different types of clouds are. But when I stumble onto something that says, do you know what types of clouds these are? I'm like, tell me more. <laughs> and that's that's what we can do here. Do you have a favorite moment here at the museum? Favorite moment? I think it's probably I was uh, I was finishing up a science show on the stage. And a lot of times after those shows, you know, kids will come up and they'll want to talk to me because I'm a guy in a lab coat. You know, and I've just done something kind of interesting that they just saw. And this little guy about four years old walks up to me, and I figure he's going to have a question about, you know, uh, whatever the show was about. I can't even remember what show it was. But he looks up at me and he says, why are you so cool? (laughs) I was like, I don't know, my man. (laughs) I'll ask my friends. (laughs) That's awesome. But that's that's great. I love being like that kind of museum famous that people come in and it's like, hey, you're the watermelon guy. Or, oh, I saw you do the fireball. No, I'm spreading it around a little bit. We're sharing it with everybody in the museum engagement team. Everybody gets a chance to do those things. But uh, that's still a holdover from the magic days when you amaze somebody and they remember it and they remember you. That's that's so gratifying. It's one of the things we say we do or we try to do is we want to make memories for people. And that's, yep. it's it's clearly locking in for them. And people don't realize they're giving as much to us as we, we're giving to them. I and mean, we want to give them information and we want to make these moments of memories for them. But guests coming in, that's that's what we talk about. That's when the, the building's buzzing with energy and, and people are are rallying off a hundred questions. That's, that's what we thrive off of. Those sure. are the memories that we're making. Well, and we actually have a, a place where our team files memories of the day. When something cool happens, we can, you know, type that up uh, so that everybody can know that it happened. And we don't just have to do an oral history of it. We can, we can actually share it with each other. What tips do you have for guests visiting the museum to get the most out of their experience? Because you see it on the floor, you see, you are immersed in that guest experience. What tips do you have for them to get the most out of it? 
Well, if they can, I highly recommend a membership uh, because this is a big place. It's a There's good plug. a lot of it. I didn't even tee you up for that. That's fantastic. Well, I mean, you know, this is a big time of year because we got a big sale on it and everything like that on memberships. But honestly, if you try and do everything in just one day, you're not going to get the most out of it. You're not going to see all the things we have to offer, and you're going to you're going to tire out. And by the end of the day, you're just going to be like, "Let's get out of here." Get a membership, come back, do one museum, then come back another time, do the other museum, come back, do the children's museum. All those things give the time to do it, so you don't feel like you're pressed to get through as fast as you can because it's a big place i mean we and we have so many more exhibits now than we had when i started five years ago that it even takes longer than it used to to get through so that's that's my first piece of advice is if it's possible if you're going to be back more than once in a year get yourself a membership and do it you know do it uh in detail and then uh my other thing would be please have your food and drink outside the museums (laughs) (laughs) There's nothing worse than crunching through a whole bunch of spilled goldfish in the cave plaza or something like that. Please. You're giving everyone this warning ahead of time because it's all—it's never a fun conversation to have. No, it's, I hate being the heavy and say, I'm sorry, you got to take that outside. But I just bought it. I know, but there was a sign and please. It, no, none of us like doing that. It's not because we don't want to clean. It's not because. No, it's because it, we don't want to clean. I, I don't want to clean that up. <laughs> uh, some things. We're. <laughs> You're dealing with some pretty some um, pretty rare stuff, uh, a lot of equipment as well, a lot of interactives and things like that. We're, we're trying to maintain the exhibits and the experience, but going to the Children's Museum, have a great time, make a little bit of a mess, use the props, use the toys, you, like learn through play, yes, but... Like you know, you don't need to slather it in in jelly and, and yeah, yeah. And stuff help, like that. Help us so, out a little yeah. bit. Make it make it so that it's fun and clean for everybody. Spread all the food out in Kroger. That's going to happen. That's fine. But just don't bring in your own food to add to it. The best thing, is, inevitably, there's a kid in the the little Kroger store in the Children's Museum who's restocking stuff. Or oh, who, I love that. That kid walks in who gets so bent out of shape. That's like, oh my god. There's frozen foods. In the produce section, and like, <laughs> don't these... you put that fruit in the vegetables? <laughs> yeah, they're just walking into this tornado, trying to reestablish some sense yeah. of calm. my my standard line when I walk into Kroger, and there's all these parents just looking at this chaos. I'm just like, every day's a blizzard in this Kroger. <laughs> um, but the best thing I saw in, in Kroger was this mom and her son walk in. And the son is just like so excited to play with Kroger. And, and he, he's like, okay, okay, mom, mom, you be the kid. And she's without breaking stride. She picks something up and goes, can I have this, mom? Mom, 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 I want this. Can I have this? Mom, mom, mom. I was like, you, you get the prize. She that got is, it. <laughs> that is the best. It's awesome. <laughs> All right, before, before we kick you out of here, if you could trade jobs, roles, uh, a day with anyone in the museum for, for 24 hours, who would it be or what role would that be and why? Mm. Well, I don't know that uh, if I trade jobs with somebody else, their job is going to get done very, very poorly. So I don't know that I want to trade the job with them so much as well, maybe, I would like to have their skills. Maybe that goes into the answer, though. Who do you want to sabotage? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Everybody's working to make this place awesome. So, um, But what I would like to do, if I was changing jobs and also getting their skills, I would love to have the skills of our exhibit designers, uh, like Dave Might and the exhibit team down there, the models that they build, the stuff that they make. I love that. And I know from doing artwork or from doing magic that it's just a question of doing it and learning it. Because, you know, people say to me all the time, I wish I could draw like you do. And I say, you can. You just got to do it every day for 10 years. Uh, And so that's what I would like is to just transplant their skills for a day and try it out and, you know, have that ability to build those realistic looking models and, and exhibits and displays. That is so cool. The exhibits team, uh, and, and Dave might in particular is, is always a popular answer mm-hmm. and rightfully so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's got mad skills. I mean, and he's of course been doing it for a long, long time, but it's just incredible. The stuff that they make for our museum that is just so beautiful and so cool. So that, that is something that I would like to like to experience, but 
you know, I just don't have the mental cycles and the the time to learn all those skills and the time that it takes to do it. So if I could do it for 24 hours, yeah, great. Let's do that. <laughs> and I think that's, that's what I hope people start to take away is whatever you love about Cincinnati museum center, there's a person behind that. And often there's multiple people Absolutely. behind that people like you who are making that museum experience, that floor experience, what it is for people who are doing these programs, who are doing the science stage shows that are that are sticking with people. If there's something you love about an exhibit and how it's laid out and the design of it, there is a team. There are individuals who are doing that. And they're they're here within this building every day, continuing to work on that. But you you don't realize like you kind of I don't I don't think you take it for granted, but you you're just in awe of the experience that you're having that you forget flesh and blood individuals. Yeah, the, those things that you're tearing up in the Ice Age Trail, uh, those were made by somebody and put there on purpose. And so please don't break the heads off the pigeons. Don't do not do that. <laughs> please don't do that. Somebody made that. Um, but uh, Please stop dumb and dumbering our pigeons, people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I mean, behind the scenes, there is always something going on that requires just incredible skills and talent. Um, shout out to the exhibits crew that comes and fixes stuff like instantly when uh, when we find something broken or out of place and they are just on the spot and they got it fixed. Oh man, props to those guys. That's that's another group of unsung heroes. That it's <laughs> it, things that are well loved throughout the museum and there there is a team that is working in the shadows. They're like ninjas. Yeah. They slide out of the darkness, repair stuff, and then fade away. It's a lot of a lot of smoke bombs. You're like, where'd they go? Yeah, that's right. They're just gone. <laughs> Jeff, this has been wonderful. It's been so much fun. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for, for telling us about Jeff, for letting us talk about Jeb. Yes. Yeah. My pleasure. I love talking about myself. Uh, and if you want to learn more about me, look me up on the museum floor. You're the best person I know about talking about you. Uh, well, yeah. I mean... We could, you know, get my wife in here to talk about how great I am too. Okay, that's that's, true. that's that's a little that's, that's a, true. That's she's really. she's very effusive of you, so <laughs> I will, I can vouch for that as well. Thank you for listening to Meanwhile at the Museum. Remember, if you liked what you heard, please rate and subscribe. But more importantly, come see for yourself. Come see Jeb. Ask Jeb all the questions. Write them down. Come in with a scroll. Ask him your questions. Visit cincymuseum.org to see the latest reasons to visit. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to tell us how much you love the show, send us an email at meanwhile at cincymuseum.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>